All right, so we began a series that was very uh, nice. It's, it's, it's becoming more importantly a, a history class. We have a tradition that aside of the thousands of men and women prophets that merited to reach the level of prophecy from when Hashem gave us the Torah until more or less the end of the first Beis Amikdosh, there are 48 prophets that we focus on, male prophets, and there are seven female prophetesses, that's the way you pronounce it, that the Gemara speaks about. So someone asked a couple of weeks ago, who were the seven women prophet, prophetesses? And we are almost at the end, so we learned about Sara, Miriam, Devoida, Chana, Abigail, and this week will be Hulda, and God willing, next week, Esther. I know that Sara is relatively known, and Miriam is relatively known, and Esther is relatively known, but let's go to today, Hulda. I want to give a lot of historic background, and then we will learn from the Gemara, the source that she was a prophetess, and we're going to see again the uniqueness from the source, uniquely about Hulda. Now, here is the history. The times of the first Beis Amikdash was a very paradoxical time. When you live it, you get used to it. When you hear about it, it doesn't make sense. What doesn't make sense? The type of godly revelation of seeing God that we were all able to experience was something that we would wish we can have a moment of that today, and everyone could have had it. Simply by walking into the Beis Hamikdash, whoever would walk into the first Beis Hamikdash would experience something that we can just call as a experience of godliness. There were miracles, there were phenomenal miracles. It wasn't about the miracle. The miracle was a symptom. We were seen by God, and we saw godliness to the most that a human being could. Who? Me, you, anyone. Now one would think, if I can see godliness, wow, I would be so inspired. Amos, you would be. But the rule is that inspiration is short-lived. Something that doesn't come from within will be short-lived. So even though we had access to that inspiration, the behavior of the people were far from the way God would have wanted it to be. And the Beis HaMikdash ultimately was destroyed for the greatest failings that you can find in a society. Because there was rampant murder, the way you have here in the United States, tragically, it's called rampant murder. Every day people are getting killed. And there's tremendous amount of the breakage of the boundaries between men and women. And there is what is called the idol worshiping, which no doubt is very much alive today, but there's a certain worship or giving value to anything other than God that's unhealthy. Whether it is worshiping the dollar, whether it is worshiping Gashmias, whether it is worshiping the me, the I, and, and plus and plus. And that was the society then. People say, wow, if we would only see God, we would mend our ways. It's not true. That was the times of the first Beis HaMikdash. Now, part of the paradox was that Beis HaMikdash was open to the public, and whoever went there had a wow experience. Had a wow experience. Yet, the Beis HaMikdash was neglected. You can think about um, if anyone entered in 770 while the Rebbe was alive, 
in Golos, it was wow. There were moments of real wow. You felt close to God. Now, I, w- I wouldn't say neglect, but it wasn't a fancy shul. Far from it. Maybe because no one noticed the Gashmias, which could be. But something similar to that was happening in the first temple. The first temple was not uh, upgraded, it was not at least facelift for many, many years, for many years, for 200 years. And it, was, it wasn't a nice place to enter. On top of that, many of the Jewish kings were idol worshippers. And some of them brought in the base Amikdash HaVaytazara to, so to say, to conceal the, the revelation of godliness. Not wanting people to have a wow experience with Yiddishkeit. And, and came along Yoshio. Yoshio was our child king. Who knows how old he was when he became a king? At least 13. He was younger. Okay, eight. I think he was six or eight. Wasn't 13 a minimum, like Bar Mitzvah? Or no? To be a king? The minimum to be obligated in the mitzvahs, but he was a child king. Mm-hmm. But he didn't His father was wicked. And he was one of the most righteous kings that we ever had. Now, obviously, when you have a child king, what will happen is more or less what happens many times in this country, where a president can just be the face, and who knows who's really calling the shots. But uh, certainly that was true with Yoshio. He was very young. But as he grew older, he very successfully really changed things, beginning with the Beis Amikdash. He understood, we have a Beis Amikdash. Let's remodel the Beis Amikdash. The Kohen Gadol at the time was a Jew by the name of Chilkiyohu, Chilkiyohu HaKohen. And when you remodel, prior to remodeling, you have to exactly know what is before you can decide what to do. And there were many holy articles that were misplaced for, for dozens of years, including, listen to this, Moshe Rabbeinu wrote 13 Sefer Torahs the day of his passing or the day prior to the day of his passing. Either Friday or on Shabbos, 13 Sefer Titus. On one day, miraculous writing. The Gemara says that he, he, he made the pen take an oath. That's a mystical expression. And the pen wrote. So all of these images that we have in cartoons of just a pen writing that is stolen from a mystical concept that Moshe Rabbeinu did. And the pen wrote 13 Sefer Titus. One of them stayed in the Mishkan. Ultimately, later making its way in the Beis HaMikdash. was misplaced. No one knew where it was. You read about this, it's hard to understand how that came about. Rabbi, can I ask you a question? Yes. Only at the end? You can ask right now, no? Okay, um, well, I guess, I mean, I can, in some ways I can relate to it. And like, when I was in Crown Heights, like there was a grassroots community that we had. And at, at a certain point, things started falling apart because no one was in charge of anything. Could be. So, was it some? I thought that the Lithium were were the managers of the property of the base Hamikdash. Were they like were they not assigned roles and like jobs? I love it. Let's for, let's throw them under the bus. It was the Lithium. It was the Kahanim. It was me. I'm it was sure, you. I don't know. I'm just wondering. So I'm telling you, I don't know. I don't know with whom was the failing. There was definitely a collective failing. Okay. And in the positive, when Yoshio. When Yoshio reigned over Israel, the beauty, the purity of a child, he really turned things around to the positive, to the positive. And let's focus on that. I don't know all the answers to your questions. I'm just, I like learning about it because 
because a human being is a paradox and it's good to know that this is the way it always was. Got it. And then my other, my final question is, I had no idea that Moshe ever wrote. I thought there was no such thing as a written Torah until, uh, oh my gosh. No, 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 it's not to distract you. It's just for everyone else, yeah? I'm sorry. Um, I thought it was, um, I thought that there was no written Torah until like a long later on in life. The oral Torah was not written until many years later, correctly so, but the written Torah was written. The Tanakh was written. I think you became unit. Oh, sorry, I, I didn't know that. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. So there was a Torah. Now listen to this. The Sefer Torah was used on occasion. Either it was used once in seven years or it was used once every year. There's a whole debate about that. How often would they use it? With all of the details, where was it stored? It was stored in the Holy of Holies. Who got it? Only the Kohen Gadol can enter there. So was it part of what the Kohen Gadol did? Could be. There's so many different historic opinions of how we got it, when we got it, when we read from it. It was, it was concealed, which means we lost it for many, many years. And this Chilkiyo HaKohen, who was an instrument of the king, much older than the king. The king was young. And we're speaking now in the 18th year of the reign of Yerushio. Now, if he became a king, either seven or six or, or eight. So just add to that now 18 years, he's still a youngster. He's in his young 20s, he's in his mid-20s. He's the king over Israel, and he's remodeling the temple, and they find the Sefer title. What do they do when they find the Sefer title? They, they had a tradition that no matter if it was read once in seven years or once a year, we knew what was read from it. But whenever they finished reading it, they would roll it back to Bedeshis. So from when we have the partial reading? Uh-huh. When did we start reading the partial reading? From when, the, from when, from, from when Moshe Rabbeinu was not alive. How much did we read? From the beginning of time, we would either read one or a third. It's not, not connected to our story. Um, uh, uh, we're not speaking about the only Sefer Torah. We're speaking about the one that he wrote. Then you had many, many, many copies the way we have today. They opened up the Sefer Torah. This is for those people who are into the Igris. This is an Igris story. They opened up the Sefer Torah. And it was not rolled where it was normally left. It's not by Bereshis. And they read. Chilkiyo read. You know what he read? He was rolled to Kisavai which is almost at the end, at the Toichacha, the words of admonition. And the verse that he read, even though there's a whole column, the verse that he picked was that the time is coming when the nation of Israel and its king will be sent to exile into a foreign land, etc. Very, very uh, not happy verse. Now when that happened, Yeshua took it to heart. Listen, we're doing what God wants. We're, we are remodeling the temple. And now the book was open to such a negative pasik. What does that mean? What does a person nowadays do when they open up a book? They interpret it to the best of their ability. What's the downside with that? As many of us heard over Shabbos, that we're subjective. We're subjective. We are subjective. So how do you know that your understanding is correct? We don't. We're doing the best we could. But during the era of the prophets... Yoshio decided to consult Hulda. And she was going to be the one who was going to tell 
him, but as a, as a prophetess, as a prophetess, what God is saying by the fact that the book was open to that negative verse. And, and let me just share more of the bigger story. First of all, Huldah was a very close relative of a very known prophet called Yirmiyahu. When I say known, it's because for some reason I hear the Goyim, Jeremiah, I don't know, my Jeremiah, so one of those. Well, he was one of the prophets, and he was considered the greatest prophet of the time. There's a sefer called Sefer Yirmiyahu. The word Yirmiyahu means bitter. He actually had a lot of prophecy about the Chorban. And, and this is the big, we're going to dive back into this end. Let me just quickly speak about it. We're coming right back to it. There are two times that you would approach a prophet. There is a time that God comes to the prophet or the prophetess. And God tells the man or the woman, go tell the people X, Y, and Z. God initiates. There are other times that you have a question. You want to know what God wants. So you say to yourself, well, I might as well go to the prophet. And if the prophet will be worthy, the prophet will be able to ask of God and get the godly response. This wasn't God coming to someone. This is we, Yoshio, choosing to go to Huldah. During the time of Yirmiyo, who was alive, they were relatives. They were very close relatives. They had the same, they were either cousins or the niece and, uh, a niece and an uncle, but they were close relatives. So he went to Huldah to find out what God wants. And we're going to read now in the Gemara the proof that she indeed was a prophetess by the very fact that he went to her. Let me, I'm, I'm so sorry, Rabbi. Sure. Advanced form of question. Sure. Can you spell this? Are you saying Hula or Hulda? What can you spell it out loud? Sure, sure. Ches vav lamid dalit hey. In correct English, it would be C H U L D A. And if someone is not Jewish or someone that wasn't educated as a Jew, then they're going to spell it with an H, like the Goyim do, Hulda, because they cannot pronounce a Ches. Her name was Chol. Chulda means a weasel. And there's, a there, weasel? Chulda means a weasel. And there were two great Jewish people. One was called Chulda, and the other one was a male advisor to the king called Achbar, which means a rat. And I was looking high and low for already three weeks because when I was in yeshiva, I heard the story why she was called Chulda. And, I'm, and I remember big parts of it, but since I couldn't find it anywhere online, which makes me question myself if, I have a, if I'm maybe confusing her with someone else, I'll wait until I find. But I remember a story about a woman that was, that, about a man that was trapped in a well. This is to my memory. And I really, I'm saying this might be wrong about her, but there was a great Jewish man that was trapped in a well and a woman, which I think was Hulda, saved him. And when, he, and when she saved him, she pulled him out of the well, he promised that he's going to marry her. These are all Jewish stories. I hope I've got the right characters. And she told him, I want to get witnesses that you're making that commitment. And there was a weasel and a, and a mouse. And they said they are the witnesses for the promise. And what happened was is that he forgot of his commitment, this man, and he got married to another woman, and they had a child, and the child was, one child was eaten up by a weasel, the other by a rat, don't ask, something like that. How do you forget? I, I'm gonna, huh? How do you forget your marriage proposal? Um, Yafa wants to know how do you, you forget your marriage proposal. I want to know how people during their marriage forget that they're married. That's a much bigger question. And uh, anyways, there's something about that name. And again, I hope I heard this from Rabbi Ginsberg. I'm just quoting from my memory, which Mistama is not correct because I haven't found it as of yet. But let me ex explain like this. 
that many people speak about the lost 10 tribes. Lost 10 tribes. They're not lost. They're not lost the way people make them to be. One of the things that Yoshio accomplished is that there are many mitzvahs that cannot be done if we don't have all of the 12 tribes living in Israel. Yoshio went to Afghanistan and to Turkestan and to all of these stands and all of, these, all of the places where they went to and behind the dark mountains, whatever that means, and he got back either some of them or most of them. And it was because of King Yoshio that for that end, the last 35 years that the temple stood, the temple was refurbished. We had enough of the 12 tribes that all of the mitzvahs that can only be practiced when you have all of the tribes in Israel, they were being practiced. He restored the Yidin to their glory. It was just, you know, many times before a person passes away, like at the end, they get like a new wind and they're filled with life. That was more or less what happened. So there were many years where there was tremendous neglect. And even though we got this wind, the Beis Amikdash was destined and sadly, it wasn't only destroyed, but it was destroyed a few years before its time. And that's another whole statement of the sages that if God would have allowed it to stand until its designated end, then the wrath of God would have been focused more on the people. And, and instead of focusing on the people, so these are the words of Chazal, the anger of God was let out on the, on the, on the physical building by it getting destroyed even prior to its real date. And many, many more Jews remained alive. Actually, by the first temple's destruction, even though it was a bloodbath, but the king, Nebuchadnezzar, understood the greatness of the Jewish people and he did not want us to be annihilated. He actually took us to Babylonia and he made Daniel his main advisor. He understood that we have a lot to contribute to our society. He wanted us to contribute to the Babylonian society. And he succeeded in doing that. Not only he allowed us to practice Yiddishkeit, that Daniel was the first one out after the temple that he was the one that prayed towards Yerushalayim. We learned that from him. Because when he prayed three times a day in the palace in front of the king, he davened Mincha, he would face Yerushalayim with the consent of the king. As long as you stay with me in Babylonia and you use your talents to me and don't go back and build a, and build a second temple, which happened only 70 years later. It was relatively a short break. Okay, so I want to read now the Gemara. How do we know that Chulda is a prophetess? Because it says that this is after they found that Sefer Torah. So who went with the king? And Achikom and Achbar. And who did they go to? They went to ask Hulda interpret the meaning of the verse that we opened up when we opened up the Sefer Torah. So asks the Gemara, Yirmiyo was alive. How was she allowed to, be, to, to activate her prophecy? Activating means it wasn't that God came to her. We went to her and she had to go to God. Now when a prophet goes and talks to God, there are certain things that they do in order to be worthy to receive the word of Hashem. There were schools that taught people how to do these techniques. We know some of them. And some of them were purposefully concealed. In other words, she needed to do something actively to ask of God. Why did she even go down that path? Why not? Because Yirmeyo was alive. And there is a rule that when you have the greater in the vicinity, the one that's not yet as great should defer to the one that's greater. 
This isn't only about prophecy. Nowadays, if someone asks a halachic question, let's speak about here to the local rabbinate. Even if you think you know the answer, you should defer the question. You can be the mouthpiece. Call over the one that is currently the greatest sage and speak it over with him. You're not allowed to give a halachic ruling if your teacher is in the city. That's a halacha today. Same thing with prophets. It makes sense. I mean, the, the question was of national significance. What's the meaning? I mean, we're speaking about ultimately we're going into exile. And Yoshio took big decisions because of what she told him. So why was she allowed to respond? Sure. For everyone, until the end of the first temple, everyone was able to reach a level of prophecy. And it was something that people aspire to. No, there wasn't just one prophet. There were thousands of prophets. And there were yeshivas, and there were for girls and for boys, there were schools, which people learned what they need to do to be worthy to receive prophecy. Some of what they did, we know. Just because you went to school doesn't mean it was easy to do. No, but, but anyway, the, the, the big prophet would decide. Like, Daniel decide in this case. Nobody else would. Talking to God and having that union with God is a end on its own, even if the decisions will, will be made by others. Who doesn't want to have a connection to God? Everyone. And the highest connection is prophecy. So it makes sense that people went to get schooling to how to become prophets. If such a school were to open, you would go. Okay. So the Gemara answers that since, since she, Hulda, was a relative to Yirmiyahu, it's not called disrespect. She had the right, once the king approached her to acquire a God, Ah, Yirmiyahu is the greatest prophet. They were mishpachim. And she actually understood something which is so true that when a parent sees their child excelling more than them, they have nachas. And if they don't, they really have to go to a psychologist. Because the Mishnah says that we are, God made us envious. We are all envious aside of two. By nature, we are not envious of our children and we are not envious of our students if we are normal and healthy. And if a person is not, nothing to be ashamed, no one is normal and no one is healthy, but be aware that this is one of the issues that we have to learn how to correct. Because when a person looks at their child and when the child exceed, excels, they don't feel envy, they feel pride. So you, you can't, she, she should not have gone to God because Yirmiyo is alive. She knew Yirmiyo will have nachas, that my little niece is a Rebar Hashem, she's a prophetess. The problem is, ask the mother, why did Yoshio go to her? That is what doesn't make sense. Yoshio should have gone to, to Yirmiyo. So one answer the Gemara gives because Yirmiyo was not there then. He was then busied, Yirmiyo, in getting back the ten tribes on behalf of Yoshio. And that was a big thing. It was to go to a foreign country, to people that were there for a very long amount of time. And they were, they were hidden. But to get people to move, it's like, you know, when people now from the modern state of Israel, they come here with a mission, let's get all the American Jews to move to Israel. You know, not so simple, even though, can't compare, there was a temple, there was no temple, but that's just the way it was. So Yirmiyo spent a lot of time in the countries where the 10 tribes were exiled to get them to come back to Israel. So he was not available. Now, answer number two, 
מפני שהנושם רחמני יסיים. This is the key of what I want to bring up. Because women by nature are more compassionate than men. And when he read a verse that's speaking about exile, how the king will go into exile and the nation will go into exile, and it's a very not happy, and it's not just exile, but it's a real exile. It's about what's happening to the Yidden over the past thousands of years. That he knew that it's much smarter for him to ask questions about Golas to a woman than to a man. Now, upa. Now, here you have to really uh, understand that we are biased. We know when someone asks you to give a judgment call, we know that we have bias, and we make an effort to remove our bias to the most that we could. We have to do that. In other words, if you go in front of a judge and you know that the judge is biased, you will never go in front of the judge. Where's the justice? Not just. And how much more so should it be if you're going to a prophet? What's prophecy? Prophecy is someone that's just channeling the word of God. You know, we have the statement that the Shekhinah spoke through the throat of Moses. Prophecy should be the only pure thing in the world that should not be tainted with bias. So everyone is pointing a finger. How do you understand this? That Yoshio, now we understand, of course, it would have been advantageous to work through a woman because you need to have more compassion and women are more compassionate. But if he's asking Hulda, not her opinion, he was asking Hulda to ask God what it means. And if she would succeed, she would just say the word of God. The word of God, whether it goes in a female voice or a male voice, only the tone of the voice should be different. But the character and the content should be the same. And if not, God forbid, then you can argue all of the prophecies are not purely the word of God. They were, they were so to say, distorted according to the character trait of the prophet. But we're not allowed to say that. We don't, that's not prophecy. Even in chachma, even in logic, even in judgment, we, we make an effort not to be biased. If a person is very compassionate by nature, I will tell you, never go to them if they're a judge because they know that they're very compassionate. And I'm just saying this on my own. And this time, they're going to make a double effort to make clear that their, uh, that their rulings as a judge is not coming from their compassion. They'll be more stringent. They'll be more cruel. They'll be more rigorous. We all, know, we all do that. We know, oh, I have to be careful not to be biased. Maybe I should remove myself, and if I'm the one that's being asked, let me tell you that I might be biased, and we bend over backwards not to be biased. So how, how, why, why will her Rahmanius affect the prophecy? And the, the main answer, there are many answers, but the answer that everyone goes around is that, of course, when she would be channeling the word of God, it makes no difference, man or woman. This really sheds light on this whole series. We're speaking about women that have Nevi'ah. It's only that when God tells a prophet to communicate something, the prophet, if they have courage, are able to challenge God. That we see in Moshe. How many things, how many psukim in the Torah? Clear, shot. God told Moshe A. Moshe tells God, no, I disagree with this. Whether he spoke firmly, whether he spoke compassionately, whether he was pleading... There are times that Moshe Rabbeinu spoke very strong to God. If you're going to do this, then the nations will say that X, Y, and Z. You'll make a chilol Hashem. 
he wasn't pleading with God, he was like demanding of God. In other words, a prophet isn't only channeling the word of God, but when the prophet is connected to God on that level, the prophet has, has the potential door opening of challenging God. And Yirmiyo, who saw a lot of darkness amongst the Jewish people, when he would have heard what Chodah heard, he would have told God, right on. Or not like that, but he wouldn't have challenged God. Certainly not the way Chodah would. Chodah mm-hmm. had Rachmanes, so Yeshua was hoping. He knows this is the verse. We're going into exile. I mean, what exactly was he expecting to hear? That is what it said. He really went to the prophet, according to this, not to get a better understanding of what it says, but to have a Jew, he were Jewish, challenge God. We're going into we're doing tshuva. And he succeeded. He succeeded because if not for him working through Holdo, the Hurban Habais would have happened much sooner. It would have happened in the life of the king because that verse spoke about the king going into exile. Not only did Yoshio not go into exile, there were four kings after him that ruled. Now already from then, from after his passing, even during those four kingdoms, they were for a very short amount of time. After he passed away, it was another 22 years. I Means from this moment, this was 35 years before the Chorban Abais. So there was another 13 years that he was king, and then there was another 22 years until the temple was destroyed. Didn't we learn that if the sooner it happened, the earlier it happens, then it's better in a way? Less damage to the people? Well, so. let's say like this, that Yoshio was spared. Maybe he didn't know that. Mm-hmm. He didn't want it to happen. He didn't want it to happen. And Hulda and said that. When Hulda told him that God said that the temple, that the time is coming of the end of the Beis Amigdash, it's going to get destroyed, Yoshio reacted to that with a much greater cry of tshuva, and she right away told him that God is accepting your tshuva, and it will not happen, not in your lifetime, and she, she knew with prophecy how much longer it's going to take. But, even, even after working through a woman on her caliber, who really challenged God and was successful to a point, since she did not come back and tell him it's not going to happen, he made a very big decision. And that decision, again, these are historic decisions. He decided that the holiest articles that we have as a people must be hidden because sooner or later, the temple will get destroyed. This was when he figured out, when he refurbished the temple, there was some sort of secretive passageway on Temple Mount. We spoke about this a while back. There's some trapdoor on the ground that when you open it up, it opens, it takes you down a path. And it's a secretive path. And it was made with the wisdom of King Solomon, which probably means that if people don't have the amount of wisdom needed, they're going to die in there. They won't get out of that. But that leads you to a chamber under the ground. And in that chamber, he put the Ark of the Covenant with the Luchais, with the Sefer Torah, with the jug of manna, with the jar of the anointing oil, with the staff of Aaron, with the gifts that the Polishtim gave the Jewish people when they returned the ark after they captured it. It was a golden gift that they gave. These things are explicitly written. They were hidden by Yoshio all because of 
the, the, the ultimate result of what Chulda let him know. And he knew it's not going to happen in his lifetime. He had a moon in that. But he felt that since it's coming to an end, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta conceal these holy items. Do you think there's anyone alive today that knows where it is? Okay, so like this, there was there was a non-Jew, a big tzaddik who passed away very recently. I think his name was Vander Jones. Oh, the Indiana Jones. Uh, Indiana Jones origin, and he he claims he was a non-Jew who got very close to Yiddishkeit, and many great people told him that he should not convert, but he should really bring the Shava Mitzvah to the people here, and he did so very successfully. He wasn't only a great scholar, but he was also a hands-on archeologist. The moving Indiana Jones was modeled after him. He was both a Chacham, very rare, and he was very hands-on. And he had a quest to find the lost ark. And he claims that he found where it is, and Mama shortly, I don't think he passed away more than 10 years ago, but shortly before he passed away, he said that whoever he was consulting with, which are the great Jewish leadership today, told him that the time has come that he can reveal where it is. And, and that is when he passed away, which means it wasn't yet the time. he revealed it to didn't reveal it to anyone. I, if I'm not mistaken, what I heard, what I, what I read from him writing, I, I saw him speak. If I'm not mistaken, he clarified in his opinion that even though the passageway to get there is and the place of the temple, Temple Mount, but the pathway doesn't remain. The chamber is not under the Temple Mount. It's further away. So something, something like that was his opinion. And he says he knows where it is. And he was able to say to someone before he passed away? He was interviewed on Arut Sheva, and you have his articles, you can go look. Vander Jones, go, go Google about him. You'll see what he said, what he didn't say. Now, all of his children converted to Judaism. Yes, for my kids, for my grandkids. But he himself was told to remain a non-Jew. Which is fine. That was his mission. Noahite. He made a big Noahite. Listen, America is very big. You know, the peripheries, the right, the left, New York and California are godless places as a rule. But the center of America is filled with the people that have a Muna. And he had a lot of influence on millions of Americans to undertake the Shalom Mrs. leaving Beginning with leaving Yoshka out of it, which is a big accomplishment. So I think the biggest message of Chulda is number one, she personifies not one sharing the word of God, but she personifies speaking back to God. Big difference. Or it's a prophet, and that is something that we have to learn from on our level. We are far from prophets. But many people feel that their mission is to enlighten everyone with what God says. And, and true. We do Mufzoyim, we tell people you gotta keep Shabbos, you gotta keep kosher. But at least equally, our mission is to share with God the needs of the people. And not God knows what they need anyway. Because if that's the case, why should I pray to God about my needs if God knows my needs also? Because when people think about being connected to God or bringing God into the world, it's not just about bringing God's word to your fellow but it's about sharing with God the words of your fellow. He used her not to hear only what God wanted because he, was, he knew that she, more than Yirmiyot, would be Matzliach in appealing to God. And this is connected not to her only as an individual, but because she was a woman. That also explains a lot why we learn many laws of prayer from Hannah, because she was a woman. Because when it comes to enforcing the word of God as an archetype, it's very important for us to emphasize genders to fight against the goyim. 
that, yeah, that bringing into the world God's word is done better as a rule by men than by women. They are forceful, they're warriors, but bringing what the people's needs to God a lot better to work through a woman. It's good to learn that. That's, Hulda. That's what Hulda Hanavia was unique. That since Nashim Rachmani is saying, he made the right choice, Yerushiol, in consulting her, and she was successful in part in delaying. Maybe it was the right balance. She delayed it, but not, uh, you know, not uh, 38 years. I think it was three years, 35 years. Perfect, but it was another 35 years. Whoever lived then was Zoycha to have a Beis Amigdash, and it was golden years because the Beis Amigdash was beautified and everything was, even though they hid it already then, but there was a huge upgrade that Yerushiol succeeded in the Beis Hamikdash, and that affected the ruchnius of the entirety of the Jewish people. One child king. The power of children. Beautiful. And now we're up to the final one, which is Esther. I know people know a lot about Esther, but we'll get to God willing next week. And then after that, we're going to go back to a Yantif the next month entirely. Rosh Hashanah is here. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Sukhashmi Yantif. I was sorry to ask, So like this, we had, we had a beautiful series on tefillah. All of these classes are recorded. They are on a website called Daily Toyota Learning. I don't mind going back to it, but I think it's nice every now and then to switch up. This was a great series. And if anyone who's listening to this anywhere online, if you can take my story with the person in the well and either tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about, which is very possible, or actually find the source, I would be grateful because I can one of those things. I heard it. If you remember it, I'm sure there's something Maybe there. I'm confusing it with someone else. Because I remember being bothered with Akbar and Hulda. Like, right. What okay. kind of yeah. And I think it was because it was the Hulda that stood up for her honor. The end of the story was, again, I think, I know that her husband's name was Shulin. And he was in charge of the royal, um, of the royal garb. He was like the dresser of the king. But, in, but she was the Navia. They say that he was the Gemara, says he was also a Navi, but she had a much greater power. Imagine from all of the Jewish women, if you count the top seven, she was from the top seven. Wow. And she was actually the last one that lived during the times of the temple, because Esther, as we all know, lived after the temple was destroyed. Wow.